Hey, this is Kathleen. And when I'm not unfucking businesses here on the podcast, I'm unfucking real estate over at ysaintpete.com. My company is Sighty Realty, and we are excited to sponsor this episode. This is Godriguez from godriguezart.com. And you're listening to Unfuck My Business. No bullshit advice for business owners who want to be resilient as fuck. Now, let the unfuckery commence. Hey, unfuckers. Welcome back to another episode of our Unfuck My Business podcast. We've got a good one today, I think. Uh, We've got Vince Carone, who's a stand-up comedian, and uh, he's going to help us unfuck our public speaking Personally, I was dragged into public speaking. I have like the worst stage fright ever. It terrifies me. And my first public speaking gig was in front of like 500 people and it was a paid gig. And I was absolutely terrified the entire time. And yet it it actually ended up turning out kind of okay. But I've had some good coaches over the years. And when people talk about public speaking, that's like it's always listed high up in your fears like your worst possible fear. Every nightmare about like being naked at school is really probably your subconscious thinking about public speaking. So we want to see if we can help you become a better public speaker today and and figure out what tips and tricks the pros use to do a good job in presenting a concept. And I'm going to let my ever effervescent co-host, Robin Sales, take the lead here, introduce our guest, and let's get the ball rolling. Thank you. You know, the fear of public speaking is one that I've never had. But my mother says that what I do for a living is her idea of hell. (laughs) And I am sure a lot of people feel the same way. You know, I I got started in theater, so I never met a camera or an audience that I didn't like. And I I cut my teeth to an improv, a la whose line is it anyway style. And Vince and I, I'm so glad he's joining us on the podcast today because I know he's got a lot to share with us. But we met back in 2016, if you can fucking believe that, sir. And uh, we bonded over comedy and some shared comics that we love and appreciate. And I am more of an improver. And so I was always very impressed with his stand-up skills because stand-up is a whole different animal. And it requires pacing and timing that um, we don't quite have to subscribe to (laughs) in the improv world. But it is my absolute pleasure to bring on with us today the fast-talking, frenetic, and frustrated Mr. Vince Carone. Say hello to everybody. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Robin. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you too. So can you quickly share, before we run down the rabbit hole of asking specific questions and tips for folks, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your journey into comedy? How, how did you get called to the stage? Yeah, how did I make it to the stage? Well, my parents loved to stand up comedy growing up. And so we always had, you know, it was always out in the house. We'd always watch the HBO specials, George Carlin and you know, Richard Jenny, Robert Schimmel, and, and all the, the guys and gals and all the greats. And they let me watch it at a young age, you know, kind of unfiltered. And uh, it was just always funny. I liked being able to repeat bits that I had heard and make adults laugh. It was always important to me when I was younger to be able to make adults laugh. It was made me feel like I fit in or belonged. And then I guess as, uh, as, as school went on, you know, I, I was kind of like right in that, that middle zone. I wasn't quite cool and I wasn't quite a loser, which is kind of like the worst spot to be in in the middle. <laughs> Because you keep trying to be cool, but you don't want to be a loser. So you're constantly in fear. And at least one of the extremes you can accept. And uh, But for me, my, uh, my ticket in was always uh, quick-witted being funny. And I wasn't a class clown funny. I was uh, more at that time more probably like insult funny. But I was always very quick-witted. And 
my mouth got me into a lot of trouble, but also also got me out of a lot of trouble. And same as you, Robin, whose line is it anyway? It was really, really hot in the in the late 90s. And uh, that's when I was in my uh, latter years of high school. And I remember watching it going, I can do that. You know, I, I'd watch it on TV and I, I'd be making up stuff along with them going, I think I can do that. And then I read that you can go to Second City here in Chicago, where I live, and you can go learn how to do that. And I was like, the hell with college. Like, well, fuck people going to college. I'm going, I'm going to, that's going to be my college. I'm going to Second City. And in the, my late senior year of high school, I started writing stand-up comedy on my own. And then right after I graduated high school, I started doing uh, Second City for a few years. And it was probably maybe like 10 months after I graduated high school, I got on stage for the first time to do stand-up comedy. And throughout a variety of uh, you know ups and downs in that, I, I've hit the 20-year mark this past May. Holy shit. Like yeah. round of applause for that. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a wild journey. That's for sure. Oh, my goodness. I also grew up in a house where stand-up comedy specials were on all the time. HBO and all those things. And fun fact, I was actually named after Robin Williams. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. My parents were huge fans. So as Jinx alluded to at the start of the episode, one of the number one fears that people have out there is public speaking. If it's not something you're inclined to or used to, the idea of going into a room to pitch your business or pitch an idea absolutely terrifies people. And I think even when you do this for a living, stage fright is part of the game. And so how do you manage stage fright? Well, as anything else, like the stage fright will lessen the more you do it, which is the last thing anybody who's scared of public speaking wants to hear is do it more and it won't bother you anymore. <laughs> like that's the last thing you, it's like, oh, wait, how do I get healthy? Well, eat right and exercise. You're like, was well, there anything else? Is there anything else I can do besides the normal? But for me, doing it a lot really helped to manage it. But it was just over preparation when I started was like the absolute key. And I know that not a lot of people want to hear that either. But I'm telling you, the more prepared you are for something, the less conscious you have to be in the moment of what could go wrong. And I think, uh, but I think that's what becomes a problem for a lot of people is they don't buy into what they're speaking about or they haven't done the prep yet to fully invest in it. And with stand-up, it's your thoughts, it's your ideas, however good or poor they are, they're yours. And so for me, like just being very, very prepared and going over it and over it and over it again allowed me to like at least and live within your limits. Like when you first start doing stand-up, I'm not going out looking for an hour set. You know, I'm looking for a five-minute speaking engagement and uh, not taking on too much. I can do anything for five minutes, you know? <laughs> and now I wouldn't be able to eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. When I first started, I'd have, I'd have to fast like the entire day or I'd throw up on the, when I first started. And then, then eventually it was like, oh, still can't yeah. eat. then it was like, oh, now I can eat breakfast. And I got myself to breakfast and lunch. And now I can eat on the fucking stage. It doesn't matter anymore. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, but that's, it was over preparation was the singular key to me doing it. I hate using sports analogies, but in, in this regard, they work. And it's the idea of the whole softball coach and the new softball player. And they keep flinching when the ball comes near them. And the coach realizes, oh, you're afraid of getting hit by the ball. So hits them with the ball on purpose. Yep. And now you've experienced it. Now you know what it's going to feel like when you get hit by the ball and you don't have to be afraid of it anymore. And so I think having an audience taking the leap I think dead silence is worse than a boo. Yeah. The no reaction is worse than an adverse reaction. But facing a, a dead audience or a dead room or hearing that first no or realizing that by the looks on their faces, what you said didn't translate, like just go and do it and experience it. Now you know what it feels like and you don't have to worry about it anymore. 
no doubt. And that that's part of the prep. It's not just prepping for everything that goes well. Sometimes you can prep for what goes bad. Do whatever you need to do to somebody else and tell them not to react at all. I want you to stay dead silent while I pitch this to you. So you just get to experience it, but it's in a controlled environment. And that's not going to eliminate everything, but to take some of the sting out of it and go, hey, worst case scenario, that's what's going to happen. And guess what? You're still here. That preparation, though, gets you going. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about some different tips to, and tricks along the way here. Yeah. I specifically have a question because like one of the reasons why my first paid public speaking gig was so traumatic was about seven or eight years earlier in my career, I'd been offered a teaching gig after I'd reached a certain point and I just had to come in and audition and teach the staff there a topic for five minutes. And I'm like, I know these topics up and down. I can do this all day long. And when I got on stage to present to that crowd, I was watching their eyes glaze over in real time. Like I had my first real instance of like pure on full panic flop sweat, you know, and I left that event. First of all, I knew I didn't get the job. But second of all, it was like, I never want to have to present in front of a crowd ever again. Is there something like when you can see that you're just fucking bombing, do you have some go-to method for, okay, I'm going to redirect this and maybe somehow get the audience on my side? Is there like an approach for that? Yeah. Yeah, there is. It's a great question. It's also, it's it's hard to do it until you've had enough experience with it. I've had thousands of gigs of people staring at me silently to, to practice this. Uh, day one, it's, it's tough to own it because you're so hard on yourself, but owning it, calling it out, calling it out is the easiest way to kill, like to just bring everybody down. Because when you're, when you're flop sweating, so is the audience. Nobody wants to sit there and watch that. Like that's, that's tough. We're all nervous together then. And so if we call it out, they like, hey, I don't know what's happening, but this has been awful. This has been boring so far. Can we agree on that? Something that just gets a quick laugh and moves. But more so than that, I would never even start one of those speaking engagements without making the audience do something first. That's like tip number one is comedians always get up, hey, give it up for this comic or give it up for that person or give it up for your weights. You do it, A, because you want to call attention and give proper kudos to the proper people. But it also establishes an immediate control of I say and you react. And when you can get them to do something that you just said, that all of a sudden your confidence goes up. And guess what? You didn't have to prepare for that line. <laughs> your first sentence up there should make them talk or react first. Because then they're, they're ones that have to publicly speak or publicly react first. And now you're just reacting back to them. And so that's that's tip number one. I love that. Yeah, that's excellent. Anytime you can get them to do something, the more ridiculous, the better. Yep. But that's a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a lot more confidence. <laughs> that's after you, you know, you've got a certain level of confidence under your belt, and it's like, hey, stand up and quack like a chicken, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I like to talk a little bit about pacing and timing because when you're nervous, the tendency subconsciously is to rush through it. The sooner I get it over with, the sooner it'll be done, you know, and I can stop being worried about it. Or um, I don't even think it's conscious for most people; they don't realize they're rushing and that they're pushing too fast or pushing too hard. And so there's more than that. A lot of people don't realize how fucking hard comedy is. Yeah. <laughs> and there's fundamentals to how comedy works and why it works. And pacing and timing is a big part of that. So talk a little bit about things that the average Joe can learn from comedians about pacing and timing. With pacing and timing, whenever you know something, you can spit it out faster than anybody could possibly comprehend it, right? So when you know how to do something, you relaying that to somebody else is always going to come out faster because you know it, you know where it's going. What we have to remember, whether it's telling jokes or whether it's giving a speech of any point, 
it's less about like them laughing and you have to give them time to understand what they should laugh at or what they should react to. And that's very, very hard because it does require confidence in what you said to take a beat and let it kick in and let it come back. So you're basically, you're playing ping pong. And what's happening, what a lot of us do when we're nervous is it's just us swinging the paddle constantly, not waiting for the ball to come back. And you got to let it go and then wait for the ball to come back to you. So you say something and it takes a second. They're going to laugh. You've earned the laugh. You've earned the reaction. Like you need to take that in because that's part of it. You earned that. Absorb that and then move on to the next point. So early on, I had a tendency to steamroll over all my laughs because I talk fast anyway. And what I had to do, what I had to learn, I learned it from watching George Carlin and Chris Rock specifically, is repeat my, uh, the last line over and over again instead of going on to the next thing. So if I felt like uncomfortable sitting silent while they were reacting or whatever, I would repeat the last line two or three times and put an emphasis on it. And sometimes like kind of like, uh, you know, uh, like, like stutter it out a little bit, you know, like, you know, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. It's time to go home. And I would just repeat that three different ways. And that allowed me to not move on and burn the rest of my speech or my material, but also laying into a point. And so that'd be another thing I'd recommend is have a couple anchors where you know, like, hey, this is, I'm making a point here. And whether they react or not, I'm going to put the exclamation point on this and I'm going to make my point. Absolutely. That's solid advice. Yeah. Because that moment of silence is the most terrifying I think I've the people I have some of the most respect. It's not respect. I respect all comedians. Anybody who has the bravery and the courage to get up there and do that, you instantly have my respect. But it's it's a sort of admiration and awe for like the Stephen Wrights and the Mitch Hedbergs, where the whole thing is paced so slow. <laughs> like I'm just way too frenetic. I that feels painful to me. And I can't imagine, like, if it seems slow to us, and that's one of the things that I tell people when they're speaking is slow it down to the point where you feel like you're moving slow. Mm -hmm. And then it's a normal pace for the people who are listening to you. Right. So if that feels like a normal pace for me listening to it, how unbelievably slow must it feel like for the person who's delivering it? It blows my mind. It's the confidence. And, and you can talk as fast or as slow or as loud or as soft as you want. And that's some of the fun that comes with speaking over time is that the, the audience is there to follow you. That's what you have to remember that. Like whether, see whether it's a sales pitch, whether you're, you're presenting for your team, interviewing somebody, that could be a, a scary moment too. I'm interviewing and I don't know what to say or, or comedy or anything. The, the audience, whoever's, the, whoever's listening is taking your lead. They don't know where this is supposed to end. And so they're going to go with you no matter what. So if you want to get quiet, they'll come down with you. You want to get loud, they'll get loud with you. Like They're going to match your energy. And as long as you're delivering it confidently, which that's where the practice comes in, but as long as you deliver it confidently, they're going to come with you for the ride. Whenever I'm, I'm doing presentations, I, I have these moments. And I rely on notes heavily during presentations, which is funny because I was a theater kid. I know how to memorize a script and all the rest of that. 
but my presentations are generally so conversational that I write them out as sort of bullet points and I'm just kind of riffing on things. And then sometimes I'll need to come back and be like, oh, what was my next bullet point, you know? And so I was in the habit of saying like, uh, hold on, I'm checking my notes, literally like calling that out, you know, in the moment instead of letting a silence hang. But a lot of my favorite comedians, like I, I love like Steve Hofstetter, for instance, uh, and uh, Anthony Jeselnik does this a lot where it's like he's sitting there and he's watching the laughs as they're happening and sort of acknowledging them. And then they all go quiet and he's still quiet for another moment after that. And I, I never I'm always thinking to myself, like, is he trying to remember what his next thing is or whatever else? And yet it doesn't seem to impact the performance at all. No one in the audience feels uncomfortable at that extra second or two of silence that it takes. And it, it looks much more calculated in the moment where it's like a pacing thing. But like for presentation type stuff where you're doing like a PowerPoint and all the rest of that stuff, I hate dry, boring PowerPoints. And so I always just use my PowerPoint slides for like memes and other things that is sort of like prop comedy in the background, you know? I'm not even like paying attention to the screen as I'm shifting slides behind me, but I'm getting an audience react from that. Yeah, I, I think you I think you have it right, like less words for sure on the screen. The words need to come from uh, the presenter, you know, and um, people can read it and post. You know what I mean? You could have backup notes. And if you want to read this, I've got it all written out. Go ahead, read it later. But like just an image association, uh, sometimes with just what you want them to think about. You know, it could, it could be abstract as long as you can like, yeah, they, they, again, they don't know what they're looking at. They're, they're trusting you and they're listening to you. So it could be, you could have anything, everything on the slides can be completely nonsensical and they won't tie that together as long as whatever you're saying is compelling. And so um, my only advice is if you do like the meme or if you, if you use the slide for the laugh, like we call attention to it, we give it its time, like we give it its place to get the reaction and then move on. Otherwise, like if you're, if we're speeding through them, you know, we're, we're going to ruin the point and kill the confidence of that too. You know, so sometimes, uh, you know, I like to, I like to use like the animation of a slide to accent a point. And so Robin, you probably saw this a while back, but, uh, I, I would start out a lot, a lot of presentations with like a cupcake example of like, why are we here today? And I would show like a, a cupcake that I tried to make online. It's like this beautiful looking Turkey cupcake. And then I talk all about, this is what's in our mind. This is where we want to be. We all have this vision. And then I would hit the animation and the cupcake I actually made would pop up right next to it. And it's this complete and utter sloppy mess. And that alone would get a laugh. I wouldn't have to say anything. And I just would let that laugh kick in and then say, who's been here? Right. And then I, so I use the slide for the engagement, get the laugh, give it its moment. But then I want attention to it. I want you looking at this image. So now give me some answers. I want the few who's felt like this, who's, been, who's seen both of these. And so I'll use the slides for the engagement. But I'm not I'm not using them to read. I'm using it to make the point on what I'm saying. Vince, I think one of the things that makes people fall in love with you and your comedy, you're incredibly fucking relatable. <laughs> like, like we talk about the sort of everyman comic, but you but you really are like so much of the things that you rant on in in your performances are are really relatable shit that we've all been through, we've all dealt with. And not everybody can take that sort of relatable observation and, and bring everybody with them, right? And so, so can you talk us through your process a little bit? Like when you've seen something and gone, oh, I can use that. How do you take that fairly mundane observation and, and turn it into content that people relate to? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I'll do my best to 
trying to put some structure around this because my, my brain is haywire. So uh, <laughs> the, the way I do it after 20 years is I get an idea uh, of something that I think this could, this could be something. And I just go up on stage with a, a blank idea and I just start rambling. And ev- eventually my, like my emotion, I just go with my emotions on whatever the subject is. And eventually either I, I strike out and there's never anything there or somebody laughs at a certain part and I'll record it and go back and go, hmm, okay, they, there's something relatable in here. Explore that more. So that's 20 years in, like up front, you know, I was, I, I was habitual about writing everything down, memorizing it all and going. So from, from that standpoint, it's going, okay, there, there, there's, some, there's something here. There's a moment that just happened. Like, am I the only person on the planet that's experienced this moment? Like most likely whatever the situation is, most likely not. Most likely other people have seen that moment. So write it down. What are the obvious points behind it? You know, I, 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 I walked into the store, somebody had 12 items in the 10 item line and that pissed me off. Okay. Like that's probably a situation. It's very vague, but we've all been there. Mm-hmm. All right. Whether it's 13 items, 20, somebody's probably been in a line and had this more. Now it's, now let's do kind of like the, the concept map with like the branches coming out. Like, why is this moment sticking with me? Like one moment is like, I, I'm pissed off that they think they're getting away with it. You know, uh, the other thought is like, I'm pissed off that it's only 12 items. I'd rather it be a hundred items, at least have some balls coming in the line. Like don't try and sneak it in. I'm, I'm pissed off because they act like the water on the bottom of the cart doesn't count as an item. But that is like, you know, I'm pissed off. Like what about impulse buys? They came in with nine items and grabbed three packs of gum. Now you're over the limit. Like this includes him. Like, and I just start drawing, you know, some of those are jokes, of course, but I just start going like, what is, what is, what is pulling at me from this? Like, why do I give it? I don't like people that bend the rules. I don't like, you know, I, I specifically counted all my items before I walked in here to make sure I was under the limit. There's, a bunch of emotions and feelings you have in there. And when you start like mapping it out, you take this, this plain Jane scenario and go, have more people felt like this? Probably. And why have I, why do I feel this way? And when you start tapping into the, why do I feel this way? That's the part where the general public stops. Most people just feel this way and they go, that annoyed me. That pissed me off. That made me laugh. They don't know why the next step is going into the why. And when you start to articulate that why to people, that's the relatable piece. They're like, shit, I, I felt that a million times. I've never been able to put that into words, but that's exactly what that's like for me. So even if it's not funny, as long as you tap into the why of the relatability, you can bring people into that head nod moment that you kind of want in public speaking. Like, ah, I'm with them. Like they're going beyond surface level now. That was brilliant. And it sounds like it's the most fun mind map ever. I'm, I, it's it's amazing. I don't normally like mind maps, but I'm like, well, shit, that sounds like way more fun. I'm doing them wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always tap into the why. <laughs> Some of the biggest lessons I've learned have come from failure. Um, and there's an extra element to failure when you're standing in front of a room full of people, right? Yeah. So I've talked on a previous episode about that high when a joke lands, like there's there's no other fucking feeling in the universe, like the feeling when the joke lands on the audience, like mwah, chef's kiss. But it would be stupid to try to chase after that moment every time we got up on stage, right? And you learn just as much from the jokes that don't land. So some of my biggest lessons have come from the joke not landing 
reading the room wrong, quite literally falling on my ass. The first thing a room full of 30 people saw was me slipping and falling on my ass, you know? I've been there. And I still have to run a whole day's orientation afterwards and they still have to respect that I know what the fuck I'm doing, even though the first thing they saw was me on my ass, right? And so I I feel like if you can come back from a moment like that, you could pretty much do anything. And so I wonder if there's a particular like fall flat story that you could share and like what you've learned and carried forward from that. Yeah, it's uh, a million fall flat stories for sure. Uh, less impactful as time goes on. Like right now, like now, a lot of those moments are more just the audience is my, they're my editors. I'm the writer, they're the editor, you know? Yeah. And that's, I think George Carlin phrased it that way a long time ago. It's so true. Like I write, you edit, you tell me what, what stays and what goes. Like that's, that's basically what you're there for. And so now I don't feel like a joke not landing is like bombing. It's just like, this is the process, everyone. Like, you know, I, now I know that one sucks. So we don't do that anymore. You save the next audience, you know? So it's very easy when, when you, but that's it, easy to do when you have an arsenal of stuff behind you that, you know, you could bounce right back with like uh, plenty of moments, certainly early on when you fall flat and every joke holds like such crazy weight, but I'll give, I'll give some like crazier stories so you can see just kind of how far out this can go. So I had a bit, I still do it every now and again, if I'm in a new town, but it was uh, centered around construction workers. And, uh, the crux of the bit was like, I saw a sign that said, hit a construction worker, $10,000 fine. I think if you find a construction worker, there should be a $10,000 reward out here. That was like the crux of the bit. And that would start out this big rant. And, uh, and one day I was in Indianapolis and um, it was uh, May of 2014. So I was, whatever, 13 years in at the time. And I was in Indianapolis and I was doing a show and I would open with this bit. And it's a 10 minute rant. And that's the opening line. And I do that line and it just, dead silence. And this is usually like an applause break opening line. And it's just dead silent. And I go into the next part of the joke of like, hit one. I'd love to hit one. Give me a chance. I drove around forever. I couldn't find one. Dead silence. Like that that 10 years in jail would be a bargain. At least the road would be finished by the time I got out. Like dead silence. And I'm like, man, these these jokes are like usually like killing. Like, and, And I'm about three and a half minutes into this bit. I keep digging this hole. And dead, and I'm just like you said, I'm 13 years in, and now I'm flop sweating because I'm going like this is like the this bit has been murdering all over the country for like a year and a half now, and I'm like, if they don't like this, I'm I'm fucked for the next hour up here. And, uh, and finally, I just kind of stopped. I stopped, and I was like, what 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 the fuck is happening here? Like, like this is these are solid like jokes. What is going on? And some lady raises her hand, and she goes, two construction workers in our town got run over and killed this morning." <laughs> And and I just stood there and in and, and her voice echoed throughout the whole place. And it just I just stood there and I I'd done comedy long enough to have a nice bounce back moment. But you want to talk like falling on your face. Uh I ended up like sitting there in silence. And in those moments, because this is like the next part of the question, what do you do in those? You have to own it. There is no, you can't ignore that. That happened. And now you gotta own it. And so I said, okay, like here's what we're gonna do. We're going to start the show over and we're going to pretend that I watched the news today. And uh, I walked off the stage completely with the microphone and I reintroduced myself to the stage and, and they're, they, they gave me a huge round of applause and I came walking right back out like, great to be here in Indianapolis. Traffic was a fucking breeze. Thank you guys for having me. And the, and the place went nuts and welcome. And we all just knew, like, I screwed up. I messed up. I read this wrong. I didn't do my due diligence here. And that's going to happen. And that's okay. You're going to fall on your ass. 
you're going to do. I've fallen off the stage before in my pacing right off the back of the stage. That's just what happens. It's, you know, you got to get back up. Yeah, if that happened, there's no going back. Somebody's got that on camera now. Like, that's just out there. You know, we got two choices. We can either, we can sink or we can swim. And they, they will throw you the life raft if you own it. If you own it. Greg Giraldo talked about being booked in at a law enforcement convention one time. And the whole time, everybody's all upbeat. And then right before he goes on to do his bit, the, the MC of the event comes out and they are taking a moment of silence for a fallen comrade. And so it's literally like 60 seconds of silence in the room. And then the MC goes, and next up, our comedy bit, Greg Giraldo, you know? <laughs> and he's like, holy shit, how do I redirect this? We're literally coming out of like a funeral dirge into a comedy bit. And he's like, I looked around at the room and I was like, and this bit is dedicated to him. So let, you know, and like, and completely like redirected and captured that in the moment, owned it and like turned it into something where he immediately got the audience back on his side. And I was so impressed with that strategic thinking, you know? How many times I've been locked up on stage trying to figure out, God, they are killing me here. And that like that you're handling and his handling that that like really quick on your feet thinking about getting yourself back into their space. Like that's that's just brilliant. Yeah. To, to even just bring it back down, like to, you know, somebody doesn't have 15 years of experience to go do that. It's literally it doesn't even have to be funny. It could just be owning it. Like I totally forgot what I was going to say. Who's ever done that before? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Like everybody clap so I can try and remember what I'm trying to say. You know, like you just be, it's, it's not as detrimental as you think it is. If you don't own it. Right. It's, it's incredibly awkward if you don't own it, but if you just tell them like, I, I need to check a note, I need to do something. Cause I don't know where the hell I'm going right now. So give me a second. Like that's okay to do. They want you to succeed, mm -hmm. whether it's an audience waiting for a comedy show or investors waiting for a pitch, you know, or the, the weekly meeting and it's your turn to present, like whatever it is, the people on the other side want you to succeed. Yep. And so I think your advice of owning it is so, so valuable because when we do that, it allows people to go, man, if it were me, I, I'd be feeling really shitty right now. Like, let's help them not feel shitty. You know, let's yeah. let them know that we've all been there kind of thing. And Chris, to your point that you were making earlier, so critical. Here's another thing that wasn't originally on my list for today, but because of your example, I want to make sure we give this piece of advice. Whatever it is, whatever type of public speaking you're about to do, understand the context of what else is going on that day. What's happening right before you go on? What's happening right after you go off? Mm -hmm. And I always ask that question and people don't understand why I'm asking that question sometimes, but I'm looking for a way to make a connection to other things that are happening in this audience's day, you know, or if something like two construction workers just got run over, I want to be conscious of that. I once got sent to train a room full of people in a building where people were actively being let go. <laughs> while we were training and I'm up there going like, welcome to the company, not knowing that their friends for the last 15 years are being laid off as we speak. Nobody told me that. And so then once I found out and I couldn't figure out why these people were so hostile during this training. So on the lunch break, somebody clued me in and then I was able to redirect it for the second half, right? If I'm the last speaker before lunch, the first thing out of my mouth is gonna be, look, I know I'm the only thing keeping you from food right now, but I promise if you stay with me, it'll be worth it. You know, like just 
setting the expectation and, and understanding the context of what's happening around your presentation will be so, so valuable. And you know what to adjust and mitigate for. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, to, to be able to pull in those elements. And not to mention, if you're, if you're getting a paid public speaking gig, uh, the organizations love it when you can tie in uh, you know, the rest of what's going on, if, if it's a conference or anything of that nature. But yeah, the acknowledgement, hey, it's, it's early in the morning. I know it's tough early in the morning. Let's all just let, let, let's wake up and let's get through it together. Or, hey, you know, I know lunch is right after this. I promise you, the more you pay attention, the faster this all goes. Get out of here a few minutes early, even if you don't. It's they want to hear that. Or if it's right after lunch, hey, we all ate, a, you know, we all ate a lot. We're all sluggish after lunch, but I, here's what I need. I need three things from you and then give them three things you need, whatever it is. You know, so let's start out with an activity so we can just get up and move. Or I promise we're going to take a break at the two o'clock mark today. So just give me full attention till two o'clock and then we're going to take that break for you. Something that just leads them to where they want to go. Even in, com- even in comedy, we do it. Anytime I get set up early, in- anytime I get booked first thing in the morning, I-, I make their complaint my complaint, you know, get up on the mic at 9 a.m. and be like, Jesus fucking Christ, who booked me in at 9 a.m.? Yep. Are any of y'all awake yet? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, you got to call it right out. I think... One of the other things that even when you have done this before, when you have a little experience under your belt, the people in the audience can sometimes be the thing that makes you nervous. So like when you know you're pitching to a well-known investor or when you're pitching to the very top president of the company, right? Or, Or in your case, I know you've shared the stage with people that you admire mm-hmm. in comedy. How does that change things? Like there's a different level of nervousness when it's like, I really want to impress this person. Yeah, I think it, uh, I mean, certainly the nerves are different depending on who the audience is or who's around or who's watching. But I think all that goes into your prep. I think like if you're, if you find yourself are going to be in one of those moments where it's like, there's a a well-known investor. Like I, I don't believe that's a moment where you're going to go skipping on the prep. You probably put in some extra prep and, in moments like that, if it's an intimate setting, I try and uh, make some like intimate contact immediately. So if it's like me doing a, you know, Vince, get up and speak in front of these five people. First thing I'll go do is before I even say a word, you go around and shake all their hands real quick. And just, just some type of connection, like, you know, something that, that separates what I'm about to do from, hey, we're people. You know, because if I can get you down to a person level, like I know I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to stand up here and look at you as like an investor the whole time, like that's just not going to work. I need... I need us both to be on equal footing here. And so I need to bring you down to my level. Shake my hand. Like once we do that, like now we're just two people that just shook hands. Now let's just talk like some type of connection. High fives can work. Again, even the give it up for this person or hey, can we just have a quick round of applause for like what an awesome organization this is? Even if it sounds cheesy, something that just brings us all down to human level. And now we're, now we're at a level playing field again. And now I can take that deep breath and settle in. Yeah. And I think that seems to be, it, it comes back to your relatability. I mean, that seems to be something that's a theme in, in talking to you today that I think a lot of people blow this out of proportion and forget that like, we're all here to have a shared experience. If it's a pitch, if it's a meeting, if it's a comedy show, whatever it is, we're all here to have a shared experience. We're all human beings 
And um, we've done an episode about imposter syndrome in the past, you know, and regardless of what you feel about that person that you're intimidated by, they're probably feeling nervous and not like a bit of an imposter in that moment as well. Yep. And so the idea of bringing it all down to that like equal human level, I think will be intensely valuable for people listening to this today. And we talk about corporate communications quite a bit where businesses fuck up by trying to talk as their brand instead of trying to talk as themselves, you know? And this is exactly that same concept, I think, in presentation and in stage work where, you know, don't try to be jinx the brand, right? You know, just be jinx the person. And, and like the more you connect across that aisle, the, the better pop you're going to be. Unless you're like, you know, fucking David Copperfield, and you have a million dollar show or something. Sure. Well, and, and the brand can come once they buy into you as the person, right? Like I want, I want to like you, and then I'll then I'll buy anything you're selling. Like that's, you know, I, I sell these these horribly obscene stickers after uh, my shows that I don't even want to say what they say on them right now. <laughs> and uh, and I charge five bucks for a stupid sticker, five dollars per sticker. And uh, and I tell them, I, I I tell the audience like, hey, you know, uh, they're five bucks. That's steep, but you got to stick them on other people's cars. That's what you buy them for. And people line up and buy four and five of these for me at a time, and I and I'm blown away. Like this is the dumbest thing ever. Uh, I sell CDs after shows. Nobody even has a fucking CD player anymore. And they, they buy them from me because they like me and they just want to take a piece of the memory with them. Yeah. And that's what you're doing in a, in a shared experience. You're giving people uh, a memory to take with them. It's all they need is one thing. And the one, one other thing I do want to just say on this um, to kind of interject it here is like, we also need to be clear on what people are uh, afraid of when it comes to this topic, because I don't truly believe people are afraid of public speaking. I think it's they're afraid of embarrassment. I know it comes with the publics, but you're not afraid to speak in public. You talk to your friends, you talk to your family, you can sit around in a group of your friends and you would just talk willingly and have all eight of them listen. You wouldn't even think twice at the family holiday dinner table. You would speak up and everybody would I know some people have extreme phobia around that, but the general public who says they're afraid of public speaking, you are not afraid to speak in public. You are afraid to embarrass yourself in a setting that you are not comfortable in yet. And that might be due to prep and other factors, but like take away the stigma. You've spoken in public millions of times. You go to the grocery store, the, hi, how are you? You answer the person there. Like other people, like we all talk in public all the time. It's you're afraid of embarrassment and you can control that through prep. I love it. Hmm. Absolutely. Man, my drop there. I've certainly made an ass of myself on multiple occasions. (laughs) 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 Nothing like, and I, I will say that I think that that's something that theater and improv and comedy teaches you is to embarrass yourself on purpose, Mm -hmm. embarrass yourself on purpose, because then you, you lose some of that fear. And when you lose some of that fear, that's, that's when you can really, take the big chances, take the big risks and, and, and maybe hit on something that, that people needed to hear. I've said before that I always like to include a fail story in every presentation that I do because by intentionally including a story about failing in this presentation, I sort of disarmed my fear of failure because we're already going to have a failure story as part of it, you know? Yep. You already established that, that humbleness and that, that's what allows you to own it is being humble. When people could see that, they can relate. And it's funny because Robin and I, uh, met on a project about five years ago. She came out to Chicago and I was, uh, I'll say I was training her on something, but Robin had all the experience already. So I really wasn't training her. Uh, but uh, but you want to talk about like an embarrassing moment, Robin. You want to talk about like falling flat on your ass. Do you remember what happened when you came out to Chicago? Do you remember I got the stomach flu like the second oh, day you right. were here? And like, 
while we were supposed to be building out this whole training thing, I was like laid up like on the conference room table. I couldn't even talk to you the entire day. I just had to be like, Robin, you have to do it yourself. I can't help you. I, I can't even talk. And like you want to talk about like falling flat on your ass and embarrassing yourself. I had the most humbling experience ever meeting meeting Robin. So, but but a you pulled it off. But I think B again. Here's another example of it was a bonding moment. You know, of mm-hmm. like if if, if we can get through this, we can get through anything. You know, and yep. I'm like oh okay, <laughs> like the moment I fell on my ass in front of a room full of thirty people who were literally waiting for me to walk through the door. So there's no way nobody didn't see me fall on my ass, right? <laughs> yep. The first thing I said to them was, "Well, nothing you do on your first day of work is going to be as bad as what you just saw." So <laughs> here we go, <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> like oh, I, at that moment it was like, all right, well it kind of takes some of the pressure off because you know this person feels like death. So I can't really fuck up that much <laughs> yeah, <that's it. laughs> in this situation. Oh, we're, we're coming to the close. Um, I want to give you the opportunity. You know, I think one of the most valuable things you've shared today is the idea of owning it regardless of what's happening. But are there any other comedy rules or comedy fundamentals that you think anybody could apply when they're giving any sort of presentation or public speaking? I think, uh, you know, we talked about it, you know, prepping up front and then being able to own it in the moment are like the two biggest rocks. But, uh, you know, as far as like, what do you prep, right? Like, what can I own? Like, there's like the whole in between piece here. It's like, uh, you know, what is the main theme? Like, if you had to summarize, like, and this is hard for people, but you should do this before you ever speak. Like, what is the, what is the, if I had like a one sentence pitch on like what today is about, what can I write? And it's going to take you several drafts. Like, you're not going to like it. You have to get down to it. Like, I saw on the on the Friends reunion, they they shared their like one sentence pitch about the show Friends. And it was uh, that time in your life when your friends are your family. And you're like, man, that just simplifies everything of what we're about to be pitched or hear or see. So I would challenge you to come up with like, what is the biggest theme, the biggest why behind what this speech is about today? What are we going to get out of it? So what is your purpose? And then have, uh, have up to three like main bullets that can be your anchors that even if you go off topic, you could always come back to one of the, what three anchors do you know, like the back of your hand that you can save like to, in case of emergency break glass. And you'll eventually get to all of them anyway, but it's like, I know if I go off topic, I can always come back to anchor number two or anchor number one or three or whatever it is. And as long as you have that staple, you should be able to start feeling comfortable going like I, I've done some good prep work and I've got enough, enough in play here. Are we ready for lightning round? I'm ready for lightning round. Let's do it. So five quick questions. Don't think about them hard at all. They're just going to go on the record forever. uh, And we will like publish this every (laughs) place that we know of and tweet at major comedians with your answers. No, quick answer. (laughs) Don't even think about it. Number one, cocktail of choice. Vodka, soda, cranberry. Jesus Christ. uh, You are are near and dear to my heart. What's your go-to de-stress method? Go-to de-stress method is going to the gym or playing guitar. Fantastic. Are you an Apple guy or PC? Uh, Apple. They all are. Jesus. Peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? Crunchy. All right. And what's your favorite insult? Oh, my favorite insult. Oh, that's good. Ah, uh, you know, I, I got to go back to a, to an old school one. Whenever somebody, whenever somebody, uh, whenever a male was uh, heckling in the in a comedy audience, uh, being able to hit him with, uh, "Hey, if your dick was as big as your mouth, there'd be a girl next to you right now." 
That's brutal. I love it. And Ooh. you can you can change you can change the you can change the anatomy and have that accommodate any any gender any which way you want to go. Uh, even if they had a girl, you'd have a better looking girl next. You'd have a richer girl next. You'd have a richer guy next to you. Like there there was a variety of ways to do it, but it was uh, it was a mic drop every single time. I'm a big fan of brutal heckler handling. So. <laughs> I've got a 10-minute montage on YouTube, so you can go check it out. I will check it out. And speaking of which, uh, everybody who wants to hear more events, we'll make sure that uh, in the show notes, we've got all of our appropriate uh, social media handles and uh, website links and all the rest of that stuff. Um, and uh, if I can find that, uh, that heckler montage, we may just drop that in there as well, just so y'all can see it uh, as well. Thanks so much for being on here. I hope all of you unfuckers out there have uh, picked up some valuable information on how to unfuck your public speaking. And until next time, we will see you next Tuesday. What the fuck are you waiting for? Take what you learned in this episode and do something with it. You'll find all the links and resources we talked about in our show notes for this episode and go to unfuckmybusiness.com to subscribe to the show.